Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, it's uh, a huge pleasure to welcome Guy Chevreau here today, all the way from Wrexham, which is good. He's local boy now. Um, obviously, Guy, as I let you know often, is a personal friend and mentor to me. But I was thinking as we were worshipping, you know, there's, there's a couple of things, you know, over the top of my notes as I prepare, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And then I think WWGS, what would Guy say? So, so I think Guy's stamp is firmly on everything that happens here. But one of the benefits of having someone like Guy back repeatedly into the church is over a while he gets to know a little bit about who we are and about the journey that we're on and is able to speak into, hopefully, significantly, powerfully into our situation from that slightly um, withdrawn position. And having been around the world and ministered in all sorts of different situations and having a, a certain insight, a unique insight and wisdom, I think, we're very pleased to have him here. Uh, and we pray that he would have a message of deep significance for us this morning. So Mark's already prayed, so I'll just hand straight over. And off we go. Good morning. God bless you. Every time I come here, I, I, I shake my head. How, how many of you here were at Jamie's first preach at Crawford Hall four years ago? Just, just have a little look around. Keep your hand up for just a moment. Have a look around. Thank you. A couple other survey sort of questions. How many of you could walk from your house to the barn in under 15 minutes? Okay, another little gander about. Thank you. And, and how many of you would say that you come from card-carrying, big B Baptist church backgrounds. <laughs> See those hands at the back. God bless you. <laughs> the barn is an anomaly, an oddity, an abnormality. It's not what one expects. Not, not in a little village like Bidford-on-Avon. You know, I, I tell people, you know, go and preach in Bidford. They go, where's that? <laughs> it's hardly on the map. And yet, in, and I'm not disparaging the little town of Bidford-on-Avon. Please let that be <laughs> underscored. But in a little town like Bidford-on-Avon, you'd expect a small, rural, Baptist church. Like the other small, rural, denominational churches around. Where the attendance is 60 or less. Where the average age is also 60. <laughs> or more. <laughs> Churches where there are three pressing concerns. First, the roof <laughs> leaks badly. And after last winter's rain, something has to be done. Second, uh, Mrs. Hollywell can no longer make it up the stairs. And they we have to build a wheelchair ramp. And, and third, Mr. Greenacre, the dedicated, long-suffering custodian, lovingly coddled the boiler through the long dark of last winter, but has assured us that it will not see us through next winter, and it has to be replaced. Now, in these small rural churches, everybody knows everybody else's name and everybody knows everybody's business. And in those same churches, the pastor or the vicar or the minister is functionally hired 
to maintain the church. A key phrase there. Hired to maintain. Not called to lead, hired to maintain. Hired functionally means that said pastor, vicar, minister is employed by the church. As in, he or she is not so much called and appointed by God for that fellowship, and he or she is not, as it were, in charge. Somebody else is calling the shots. Maintaining functionally means that status quo is the ministry mandate. If you don't know any Latin, status quo can be loosely translated as the mess we're currently in. <laughs> the ministry mandate doesn't need to be, there's no vision statement. Doesn't need to be again because everybody knows it. It simply runs, we've always done it this way. And it goes without saying, we'll always keep doing it this way. And it's pretty simple. The pastor's job is to preach the word, but never longer than 15 minutes. <laughs> Visit the elderly, the shut-in, and bury the dead with dignity. It's a simple job. In terms of a small rural church, once is more than enough of a visit for any stray visitor. It's been decades since anybody can remember a salvation. Prayers for the sick amount to asking God to guide the hand of the surgeon. There's no prophetic voice. There's no sense, no expectation of the presence of God in their midst. There are no miracle stories of the power of God's love at work in their midst. There's no sense of mission or outreach to their community. There's no intentional care for the poor and the marginalized. They do, however, put on a splendid cream tea in the summer. <laughs> now, I concede it's a caricature, and, and I know that lots of you have been thinking about the Vicar of Dibley. I, I know, I know. But some of you have come from churches a lot like that. And if not in Bidford, you wouldn't have to travel too far to find a small rural church that's traveling along tracks like I've described. But not the barn. You are a glorious abnormality. You're attendance. You're four times larger than the average British church. And you're growing. I did a little research to put things in context. The average church in Britain has been in free fall decline for 40 years. The Tear Fund report, church going in the UK had a stat, a category I'd never seen before, the de-churched. Those who used to go to church, still believe in God, but don't go anymore, the de-churched. They outnumber regular church attenders, you ready for this? Two to one. There are more believers outside of church than there are in two to one. So back to our survey for just a moment. If you would have counted yourself among the de-churched, but now count the barn as home, would you raise your hand? Thank you. You're gloriously abnormal in your regional draw. If you have to drive more than 30 minutes to get here. Not too many, but some, right? Um, don't mean to embarrass you, but if you're under 35, put up your hand. You put your hand down. <laughs> Young in spirit, yeah. How many kids are up in the classroom? How many teens? 
You are one of very few churches who welcome newcomers on a regular basis. And you're one of an even fewer churches who get to welcome those folks back on subsequent Sundays. You're one of very, very few churches who see folks come to faith. You're one of very, very few churches who get to witness baptisms on a regular basis. Now, these questions, these observations, they're the measurables. I ask how many, and, and we get a number. And it's fairly easy. You count the hands and you have a sense of how many new people have come in the last four years. The measurables are important to quantify, but numbers in and of themselves can be misleading. That because the term church growth is rather a sloppy one. Now, if, if you've got nothing better to do this afternoon, Google church growth. And in nanoseconds, over two million hits will come up. Now, most of it's denominational networks and, and adverts, but once you get through that, just scan a few pages. Dramatic church growth. Double your church attendance in 90 days. Simple and low-cost programs. Church growth advice. Church websites can draw in non-Christians to your church. Church not growing. Even shrinking, find a brand new approach. Now, I don't debate that any of those programs will work. I'll give you a real-life example. One of my ministry hosts, Eddie Mason, pastors a church south of Atlanta, Georgia. I will never forget the look on Eddie's face when he told me about a neighboring church and their special Easter program. This is a big church, over 3,000 people. They had a big campus, a school attached to it. And their big Easter draw was they were going to host a massive egg hunt. But that's not all. A low-flying plane was going to cross over the campus and the Easter Bunny was going to parachute out of the plane and land in the middle of the sports field to kick off the egg hunt. Now that's sure to draw a crowd, isn't it? I don't debate that it would. You get some folks to church that would never been to see the Easter Bunny jump out of the plane and, you know, chocolify the kids and it'd be a great day. But I do want to suggest something's a little skewed when the Easter Bunny is the lead character in your resurrection celebrations. <laughs> See, one needs to ask ruthless questions of church growth. Specifically, what is growing? Now, please do not work this metaphor too hard because it'll go real wrong really fast, okay? But you can grow church mushrooms quite quickly and quite easily. But the Isaiah 61 verse 3, oaks of righteousness grow very differently. There's a massive difference between a mushroom and an oak of righteousness. If you go to the back of the book, the way I read it, things get worse before they get better. And oaks of righteousness will prevail in ways a mushroom never will. A mushroom cannot survive persecution, let alone martyrdom but an oak will. But it doesn't take the apocalypse to tell the difference. 
all God's children got problems, right? Again, oaks prevail in ways mushrooms do not. When things get dire, a well-versed mushroom may pray from John 12, 27, Father, <laughs> save me from this hour. An oak, same circumstances, will pray from the same verse, but the second half of that verse. Father, glorify your name. And again, there's a world difference between those two prayers. Father, save me from this hour. Father, glorify your name. Earth's realities, heaven's realities. I've certainly been in very well attended churches and as I've gotten to know them, it's very evident by and large that it's a congregation of mushrooms. And I've also been privileged to work with churches that continue to grow numerically but they are raising up oaks of righteousness. Theirs is a deepening spiritual maturity and a giftedness and a servant-heartedness that is growing person by person by person. But, but things like spiritual maturity and that ongoing conversion of heart and, and that servant-heartedness for others that's far more difficult to measure than the measurables we started out with. It's way easier to say how long have you been coming to the barn and get a, a figure on that than it is how's your heart. The, the, the issues of maturity, spiritual maturity, are, are intangible. They're subtle. There, there's this ongoing shift from self-centeredness, from self-absorption, from self-direction. And we're all in that process, hopefully, of that kind of shift. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but just in a moment of ruthless honesty. Do you, do you find yourself ever humming it's all about me, Jesus. You should do things my way. Yeah, most of us still have a ways to go. I do. A answering these intangible questions. Again, they're, they're so much more difficult than, than the how far do you drive to church. The intangibles are the bigger issues. Tr try these questions for instance. Again, no show of hands. This is between you and your heart. Is there a greater love a greater love for God as it's reflected in your personal private prayer time, your personal worship, in your commitment to serve. Is there a greater love towards those around you? A greater love for your spouse? Greater love for your kids. Greater love for your dopey brother-in-law. Is there a stirring of concern for the poor and the broken and the marginalized and the awkward? Are you becoming more of a friend of sinners? See, at the end of the day, this is the only measurable that counts. Are we growing in love? 
See, if we're not growing in love, we need to stop doing whatever it is we're doing because we're doing something fundamentally wrong. It's a big book. And it doesn't take much to get sidetracked, to make the simple complex, to forget to keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing is love. Ponder this question, whom specifically are you loving? Today, tomorrow, this, this coming week, how specifically can you nurture your wife? Specifically, how can you romance your husband? Specifically, how can you... Bless your kids. How can you encourage your leadership here at the barn? What, what can you do for your dopey brother-in-law? How can you show kindness to your next-door neighbor? For the men, the women that you work with, how can you be blessing to them this coming week? I've asked those questions fairly slowly. I want to ask, what's the, the Holy Spirit stirred in your heart, stirred in your spirit as I've worked down the list? Stirred because God is love. He's the Lord of love. Love is who he is. Love is what he does. He made us for love. And that's what he works into us. Purpose is to work through us. Specifically. Those around us. And beyond. His spirit within us. Continuously makes us ever more loving. And so. The gutsiest question yet here this morning. If here at the barn you've experienced something of the presence of God, something of the power of his love, such that your life has been significantly touched, something of blessing, of forgiveness, of release, restoration, something of redemption. And, and because of that touch, you're not living the same kind of self-centered, self-absorbed, self-directed me and my little life. If you've received something of that touch, would you just raise your hand and just have a look around? That's not at all what you'd expect from a little church in rural Bidford-on-Avon, is it? Now, of necessity, it's all rather disorienting. I know, I know, I know. All manner of things have changed, are changing, will continue to change. And if you don't like change, you best give up praying. Because there, there isn't a, a heartfelt prayer, a sincere heartfelt prayer that's offered up that doesn't change things. God honors prayer. Certainly, if, if you don't like change, do not pray Come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Because there's just a, you know, a disconnect there. But if you do want the Lord to make all things new, if you want him to work his loving, gracious, redemptive purpose in and through you, under the furthering of his kingdom and the blessing of this community,
you need to get it settled that things are going to change. They're going to keep changing. And again, that's disorienting. So what should you expect here at the barn? Well, I've already set up that things are going to keep changing. But, but specifically, I'm not going to go into all the sociological changes that you're facing that as you continue to grow, but I will give a couple of for instances. There would be very few here who could have each and every single person stand up and name every person here, at least by first name. Is there anybody here that thinks they could actually name every adult here? Forget about the kids for a moment. Anybody here that could name every single adult? You're too big for that. And that's a massive shift for some of you when you think about what it means to be church. What with all the changes, all these new people, all the new people that will keep coming, some of you may, may be wondering, what's happening to my church? That's one of the big shifts. Maybe the biggest shift in expectation because the barn it's not your church and, and, and just for the record it's not Jamie's either <laughs> the barn is not your church it's not what you want for your church it's not what Jamie wants for his church it's not what any one of you thinks is right or best or good. It's what you all, plural, think you should be doing. What you think the priorities ought to be. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. He kind of thinks he owns this thing. I guess when we keep calling him Lord, he, he kind of, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> I can do that. I'll be Lord of this thing. Now, now stick with me for a moment. I was discipled by a Baptist church. Spent four years Baptist seminary was two years an associate minister in a Baptist church, was then 13 years a senior minister in three Baptist churches. I, I know my way around things Baptist, more or less. Baptists have five main distinctives. The first is that the scriptures are sole and final authority for all matters of faith and conduct. Great, gold star, absolutely wonderful. Second, we believe in believers' baptism by immersion. Gold star. Third, priesthood of all believers. We all have that individual, no restricted access to our Heavenly Father. That's great, all gifted to minister. Gold star. Autonomy of the local church, fourth distinctive. I'd give that a bronze star. Yes. You at the barn have a unique calling, and it's yours to live that out, to discern it and to live it out without the meddling of moderators or bishops or telling you what and how you ought to do it. That's good, bronze star. But that does not mean you are independent. The Church of Jesus Christ is always interdependent, it also means that the local church, any local church, needs a larger relationship, not just with other churches in their town or village, but every local church needs input, needs help from the outside. 
translocal help. Whether you call it bishops, whether you call it apostles, whether you want to call it spiritual big brothers and sisters, I don't care what the term is, but that you're relating to somebody who can come in and bring a measure of objectivity to things. Sometimes it's a word of correction because things have gotten a little wonky. That's a very technical theological term, wonky. <laughs> There's a wobble. Sometimes it's an encouragement. You know, yay, cheerleading. That I, I, I feel like that a lot here. You know, I'm, I'm the, the dopey uncle that comes by and just can't, you know. <laughs> you know. You know it's like, I love it. Bronze star for the, the autonomy of the local church. Fifth distinctive for Baptist churches, congregational polity. <laughs> Go back to number one. The scriptures are sole and final authority for all matters of faith and conduct. Gold star. Great. Absolute. Wouldn't want it any other way. Congregational polity. Where in the scriptures do you find that? Democratic congregational polity. Now, you can't say that you don't. Can't say that you won't find it. Can't say that it's not there. The word democracy comes from two Greek words pasted together. Demos, the people, and arche, to rule. Democracy is the rule of the people. There are times in the scriptures when majority rules. For instance, when Pilate presents Jesus to the mob and says, I find no guilt in him, the crowd shouts back, crucify. And they are so insistent that Pilate decides to let them have their way. And he hands Jesus over to be crucified. There you have it. Democracy in action. Now, I, I quickly concede that's worst case scenario. There are sociological, historical, political reasons for Baptistic congregational polity, but there are no healthy or fruitful scriptural bases for congregational polity. And it causes Baptist churches grief right around the world. Now, I appreciate there are only a very few card-carrying Baptists here. For most of you, this is no whoop at all. You kind of scratch your head and go, I don't get it, nor should you. But if I am fussing with you, if you hold congregational polity near and dear, would you please think on this? From their church rules and constitutions, most Baptist churches have something along this sort of line. The church is founded upon a congregational model. Consequently, the church members are the ultimate authority in matters of spiritual authority and discerning the mind of God. That is a very high standard. In fact, it is the most rigorous of all forms of church government. That because there is in it absolutely no place for individualism. What do I think we should do here at my church? What do I feel? What do I want for my church? There's no place for corporate consensus. What do we think? What do we feel? What do we want for our church? At its very best, church members do not have the ultimate authority, they have the ultimate responsibility to discern the mind of God. 
What does the Lord will? What does the Lord want? What is the Lord purposing for us here at his church? The, the bar, the standard here, is set in Gethsemane. If you want to hold to congregational polity, you have to be willing to go to Gethsemane before you vote. Gethsemane with Jesus, pouring, anguishing in spirit, not my will, but yours be done. That requires a ruthlessness. It requires, congregational polity requires that each member, each voting person, withdraw to the secret place. Again, anguishing in spirit and allowing the word of God written and spoken to us to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discriminating the thoughts and purposes of heart and not come out of the secret place until we have it settled that Okay, I'm no longer in that place where this is what I want, this is what I think, this is what we need to do. That's been severed. And you come out of the secret place knowing, Father, this is what you purpose by way of glory. Congregational polity requires that we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And that requires attentiveness, requires discernment, requires an ever-deepening relationship with the Lord. And all of those things are very, very good. They're the signals of that spiritual maturity I spoke of earlier. There is that core understanding that, that what the Lord purposes for His local church will be based on kingdom values, kingdom purposes, kingdom dynamics. And it understands that most of us aren't living naturally out of kingdom value, kingdom purpose, kingdom dynamics. We only come to those things in the secret place as we put our hearts before the Lord. I said a few minutes ago, there's no place, no biblical basis for healthy, fruitful congregational polity in the scriptures. You read, read the book of Acts, you read Paul's letters, you won't find an example of healthy, fruitful congregational polity in the New Testament. There's a simple reason for that. Because the majority of any given church family, the majority are not far enough along in their spiritual journey where they're willing to make decisions in Gethsemane, to lay down their wishes, to lay down their preferences, to lay down their opinions, and allow that discriminating work of the Holy Spirit divide soul and spirit such that they seek only God's will. Now, if that offends you, if you're fussed with me right now, we need to have a long talk about character. We have to have a long talk about spirit ruling over soul. We need to have a long talk about humility. See, all of this is why in the New Testament, the churches that we read about were governed by elders. That's why healthy, growing churches now are governed by elders. Elders are not necessarily the grayest heads 
in the church family. They are those whose spiritual maturity and character have been recognized by the church family. It's been tried, it's been tested over the long haul. There may be others in the church who are older in faith, but not as mature. And that's not an accusation, it's a recognition. And again, if, if you should feel in any way insulted, humble yourself and rise to the calling. It, it, it's a, a, a glorious kingdom contradiction, isn't it? You, you want to aspire to the position of eldership? Great. Humble yourself. And, and just so you know, Jamie would love to pastor a congregation full of elders. May your tribe increase. That because elders are folk who have surrendered the control of their lives. They've entrusted everything to the Lord. They put it on the line in ways that few others have. See, it's one thing to come for ministry time and put yourself, your life circumstances before the Lord, to lay yourself out before the Lord, to receive His grace, receive an anointing. The acid test is what you do with it once you get up and get going. Elders prove themselves in their character and in their conduct over the long haul. They've faced what life has thrown at them and they've surrendered their personal agendas. They've allowed the Spirit of God to do that severing of soul and of spirit. They've done their best then to come into agreement with what they've discerned the Lord to be calling forth. They've aligned their thoughts and their purposes of heart with His. That's all they want, to know Him, to know the power of His resurrection. But what sets elders apart is very simple, but very deep. When decisions have had to be made, elders have diligently sought the will of the Lord, and they've consistently said, yes, Lord. Whatever it is they're facing, that's their posture. Yes, Lord. Not without struggle, not without tears, not without help. But they've consistently come to that place where they've said, yes, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. And they've said, thank you. Not, not for circumstance. Definitely not, but, but whatever they're facing, thank you for the grace. Thank you for the strength. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the peace. All of this and more is why the scriptures call us to give honor where honor is due. That's the admonition in terms of the church for their elders. Honor where honor is due. Healthy, growing churches trust their elders to pray through the decisions, to pray through the issues that the church is facing. And they trust, they honor, that their elders will pray through Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I appreciate some of you may be growling and thinking, and he sure hasn't preached much of the word this morning. Um, may I suggest that this 30, 35 minutes stand as exposition and commentary and application of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Can you put that up, please? You, here at the barn, you are being built. It's 
an ongoing process. You're not where you were four years ago. You're not where you were two years ago. You're not where you were 15 minutes ago. <laughs> you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You here at the barn, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You here at the barn are God's special possession. That you might declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Would you stand? please. At very least, this Jamie's spiritual big brother and his dopey uncle, I'd like to bless you this morning. Father, I so thank you for the wonderful work of grace here at the barn. For the, the glorious <laughs> abnormality these gathered folks are. Father, for the ways in which you have stirred heart by heart. Father, for the ways in which you have called and blessed and anointed Father, for the work of redemption, of restoration, for the salvation and the baptisms. Lord, for all that you have poured forth here, all that you yet purpose to build these dear brothers and sisters in to the spiritual house you purpose the barn to be. Holy Spirit, for the ongoing work of grace, for the kingdom seed that has been sown, Lord, that it yield 30, 60, 100 fold. Lord, for the glorious work in the children's lives and the teens and the example, the, the hope, the passion that is being imparted there, Lord, a legacy that will come forth in those young men and women. Lord, we bless you. We thank you. We pray for the grace. Lord, I, I ask for grace upon grace, all that's needed to nurture and bring to fulfillment, fruitfulness, the legacy that you are already depositing. But Lord, for every heart here, every life, I, I bless that ongoing work of your grace, that ongoing sanctifying grace unto that holiness and wholeness that you purpose for each and every one. Holy Spirit, that, that each and every one here this morning, Lord, know that stirring of love. Holy Spirit, right now, we ask that you stir our hearts. Give to us a, a specific way to show kindness. To demonstrate honor. To nurture. To bless, to encourage. 
Lord, to come alongside. Lord, we ask for the grace. The special grace, if, if it's a hard thing you're calling us to. Not to let it go, not to ignore it, not to lose it. Lord, we ask for the courage to rise to your call. Father, I speak heaven's blessing over all that you're calling forth from the barn, for the barn, in the months and the, the years to come. A, a bless the ways in which you purpose light to shine forth, not just from this building, though we pray. Even more, Lord, you fill it with light. But in the lives of each man and woman, boy and child here, boy and girl here, Lord, the light of your love shining forth from their eyes and their hearts. Just in the way they, they treat those around them. The light of your love shining. Overcoming the dark. Father, may we be a people that ever cry, Father, glorify your name. Whatever it is we're facing, whatever circumstances hold, Holy Spirit, would you bring us to the place where we can confidently trust your love, confidently trust your faithfulness, not be worried about our comfort, not be worried about our safety or our security, but be so confident in your unfailing love. Our hearts cry, Father, glorify your name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We bless you.